Hello, and welcome back to another episode of EdChoice Chats. This is Mike McShane, Director of National Research at EdChoice. I am joined today by Paul DePerna, Vice President of Research and Guru of All Things Polling, and Drew Catt, Director of State Research and Special Projects, to talk about our most recent iteration of our tracker survey. So those of you regular listeners to the podcast know Every month now, we are partnering with Morning Consult, the polling firm, to survey a representative sample of Americans to talk to them about education. We uh, luckily, because of the sort of format of this, we're able to ask some current events questions, which we'll be getting into today, talking about things like the coronavirus and schools opening back up again. Then we were also able to track some longer term trends about questions that we're interested in related to education policy and others, which we'll, which we'll be talking about as well. For those of you, just to get it out of the way here at the beginning, who are interested in some of the, the things about the poll that we're doing, this particular poll we'll be talking about today was in the field from August 12th to August 17th, 2020. So this was right in the middle of back to school time. So maybe some some schools across the country might have shown up a little bit, uh, might have had kids coming back a little bit earlier than that. Some might have been going a little later. So, you know, that's an interesting sort of wrinkle in this as to what's going on. And it was a survey of 2,200 Americans. So that's a nice, big, broad, general sample of what's going on there. So, you know, to kick it off, I think we probably want to start with the uh, issues that are at top of mind to just about everybody across the country right now and talking about the coronavirus. You know, one of the things that stood out to me, one of the questions that was asked uh, was about the disruption caused by the coronavirus just in people's lives. So this is before we talk about education, before we talk about anything else, we just asked this question about how disruptive the coronavirus had been. And I was sort of interested in this because the percentage of people who said that it was very disruptive, when we first asked this question back in March, um, and we asked it looking at different levels. So we start by asking people in your own community. We talk about people in your own family and uh, your household routines. Then we talk about your sort of personal routines. If we look at the community line, when we first asked this question in March, 48% of respondents said that the coronavirus had been very disruptive to their life. The next month in April, it went up 56% of respondents said that it had been very disruptive. But since April, each month we've seen it sort of tick down. In May, it ticked down to 48%, in June to 45%, in July to 38%, and it's held there into August. So gentlemen, I'm interested in sort of your responses to this and sort of how it makes us think about questions around school reopening and education policy. If people are seeing the coronavirus is less disruptive in the, their lives. Are schools playing a role in this, or is this a sort of wave that they have to ride? Yeah, it, it's great to be here with you, Mike and Drew. And I think, you know, and this is like back to school time. I mean, this is like a prolonged back to school period where states have been kind of staggered in terms of when things are going back. And so it is interesting to see that there was this escalation from March to April, and then things have been going down since at the community level household level and personal level. And it seems like it's plateaued in the last uh, couple waves of our survey. And I believe this is pretty consistent with what others have found in, in their polling. There was a really interesting Washington Post Ipsos Shar School joint poll that was released at the beginning, uh, towards, I think it was the beginning of August. It seemed to show that there, you know, that there was some tapering off of concern in some other polls. 
on national polls, we're taking in snapshots where the heightened concern isn't as great as it was at the, at the kind of the, you know the start of the pandemic in, in March and April. You know, thinking about this trend, it is interesting how that community line, how you pointed out, is consistently higher than the other two, uh, whether it's the household level or personal level. And so right now we're sitting at 38% say that it's very disruptive at the community level, and that's the same as July. And then the percentages have held pretty steady at the household and personal levels in the low 30s, like around 30, 32%. And so it'll be interesting to see. We can. We, this is something we plan to continue tracking in future months. And so when we get into the fall and into the winter, when some public health experts expect some more disruptions from COVID combined with flu incidents. And so, so we'll see what happens, and, you know, especially when we get into November and December and where these lines go. Yeah, those are some great points, Paul. And yeah, thanks for uh, hosting and having us on, Mike. I, I think the the one kind of interesting thing to me is the uh, when you look at the personal routine, there was that uptick from July to August. So I wonder how much of that has to do with, you know, a shift in work, whether or not these are people that are, you know, involved in academia or K-12 education for their jobs, the, just the nature of their work is changing from July to August. So yeah, I wonder how much of that is picked up. I know we don't necessarily ask what industry folks are in who are responding to the survey. But yeah, just just kind of something to think about of like the folks that you know and thinking about how much their personal routine has been changing in the last six weeks versus their household routine versus, you know, your community at large. Yeah, I think this touches on a theme that, you know, as we've been looking at these polling responses over the course of the summer, just the variation that we see that there hasn't been this kind of uniform coronavirus experience. Now, we may have seen that sort of back in April, where lots and lots of people were under similar conditions because the lockdown measures that were put in place were so strict and sort of wide ranging. But as states had backed those off, just sort of depending on sort of drew exactly what you were saying, depending on who you are, depending on what you do, depending on where you live, you could be having a really different experience of the coronavirus than other people. And I think that this is something that gets short shrift in a lot of the conversations, whether it's about back to school or really about anything else, that people are having different experiences of the coronavirus. And whenever you have people sort of offering their opinions about what they should do or how the coronavirus has, has been impacting them, one of those maybe important next questions to ask is sort of like, well, where are you situated in all of this, right? So you imagine the person who's able to work from home, who gets their groceries delivered, who's maybe their parents or grandparents live in another city or something. Like they experience the coronavirus in a particular way. You have other people who have school age kids or who live in a rural area. I mean, you can slice and dice this any number of different ways, but people are experiencing this differently. Yeah, just to follow up uh, with that, Mike, just looking at some of the crosstabs and in, in the demographic breakouts, there is, on uh, this question, there are some differences, major differences between urban, suburban, and rural folks. And so urbanites are much more likely to say that it's been very disruptive at any of those levels, and particularly at the community level. And then, you know, compare that with small town and rural, they're much less likely to say very disruptive. And so, uh, yes, I think that's right. I mean, it is very, you know, there is a lot of variation on this question and some of the other questions around COVID and its, and its effects. So a next piece that, that was interesting, and we spent a lot of time on our last podcast talking about 
opinions about homeschooling as a result of the coronavirus. So we asked our folks a question, how have your opinions on homeschooling changed as a result of the coronavirus? And the story last month was we saw this huge jump, whereas from March to June, we saw about a quarter of respondents, so ranging from 26, 28, 26, 25 percent, depending on the month, saying that they were much more favorable to homeschooling as a result of this. And then in July, we saw that jump dramatically. 43 percent of respondents now say that they are much more favorable. And I know when we were having that conversation, we were thinking, is this, is this a fluke? Was it just a, a question of the sample of people that we had? But interestingly, that held. So now in August, 40% of respondents said that their opinions on homeschooling have changed and they are much more favorable. And the sort of somewhat more favorable stayed large as well at 28%. So 68% of respondents were either somewhat or much more favorable. Do we think that this is a durable finding? Is this the sort of new normal of impressions of homeschooling? I think that's the million dollar question. And in some ways, I mean, I hate to cop out and say that it might be too early to tell, but we're able to see this trend over what now is about six month period. And so I, I'm really interested to see where that line is in terms of those who are much more favorable, where that goes over the course of the school year, especially as folks settle in on where they are enrolling their children, what types of schools, or if they are having them at home, or even maybe in, you know, in learning centers that some urban districts have been creating, or you know, pandemic pods that have been talked about a lot in, in the last couple of months. And so looking at where parents are on this, and especially even parents of, of younger kids in, K, in K-4 uh, in elementary school, that they seem to be that much more favorable, even compared to some of the parents of high, of high schoolers and, and older children. So, yeah, it, it, to me, yeah, it's, it's really interesting finding, and it's something that I'm anxious to see where it goes over the course of the year. I believe I brought this up on the last podcast, but I feel like I would be remiss as the former homeschooler to not point out the uh, definition of homeschooling and how that can be different from parent to parent. That's a really good point. And I think that a lot of this stuff is actually starting to kind of break down as we have these conversations of what school is supposed to look like in this coming year. And so that brings us to the topic of pods. You know, we've heard this conversation come up over and over again, talking about people breaking into these pandemic pods. So it's these sort of small home-based schooling options, even though I guess probably they don't necessarily even have to be based in a home, but people basically breaking away from the school system to create small schools of maybe five, six, seven, eight kids um, within a particular area. And so we asked, I believe for the first time in our tracking survey about pandemic pods. So we asked the question, as a result of the coronavirus pandemic, are you planning to form a quote unquote pod with other families? And according to the school parents that we talked to, 33% said that yes, and they've currently identified a pod, 14% said yes, but they were still looking to find a pod. And 53% said no, we're not planning to form a pod. But 33% is a huge number. I mean, that's a huge number of people that are talking about this. Now, do we think that, is that some irrational exuberance here? Or do we really think that a substantial number of folks in this school year are going to be pandemic podding? Yes, I think that the timing of the fielding always comes to my mind, especially with some of these questions about what 
parents and are planning to do right now. So we definitely plan on asking this over the next few months to see where things are. But yet the proportion saying that they've identified a pod, almost a third, that does really stand out. And even those who are looking to form a pod, I mean, so you combine those two responses where it's almost near half of the parents expressed at least interest in forming a pod. And the pod term was defined for those respondents so that they weren't just kind of like completely left out on a lurch on what the meaning might be. But we tried to follow, um, yeah, just to describe it as, you know, that, that these are parents who are organizing a learning environment for their children outside of the school. It's something to keep an eye on. I was looking at the demographics, and so it was interesting that there were no differences by race and ethnicity, at least on that. Yes, we have a currently we have currently identified a pod where uh, African Americans, Latinos, and white parents were all responding the same way to the question. But then we did see differences by income, and I think that some of the discussion and op eds and writings and in social media about some concerns about how the pandemic pods are being utilized by different income groups. We see that the higher income group is much more likely to respond that they've identified. So almost half of the high income uh, parents said that they have identified a pod in our sample. Uh, and this is roughly, I should have said at the beginning, this is roughly a sample of just over 500 parents uh, to give folks a sense of the sample size and the confidence we can bring to bear on the results. So half of high-income parents said that they've identified a pod, and another 15% said that they were looking into forming a pod. So that's almost two-thirds uh, of high-income parents. And then if you compare that to the low- and middle-income categories, it's about a quarter of low-income, a quarter of middle-income families have, have identified pods, and then about 13 14% have, have said that they're looking into forming pods. So there are some differences by income and then we also saw some interesting differences by self-identification uh, in, in terms of their political leaning as well. Yeah, it seemed like it, from the findings, the the three characteristics that made you most likely to be forming pods are higher income. And just to put some numbers around it, we defined high income as, I believe that's a household income of more than $75,000 a year. That's Middle right. income was between 35 and 75 and low income was less than 35. So high income. K-4 parents and folks from urban areas. So those are the three most likely characteristics that would push you towards potting. So if in an urban area, parent of a K-4 student, high income. So not to poke too many uh, holes in the cheese, if you will, but the whole pod definition, I know that, Paul, you specify that it's outside of school, but I wonder how many of those parents have children that are doing um, a hybrid their schools are doing a hybrid approach, so they're physically in the school one day, at home one day, or a two-day, two-day approach, what have you. I wonder how many of those are parents that are having a hybrid pod, so the student is physically going to school on those days, but when they're doing their uh, virtual learning days, those are the pod days, such as um, you know taking turns whose house they go to so all the kids are learning together. And just anecdotally, and just in where we are, uh, we our girls have been in school for almost a month now, and just talking with neighbors, friends. I mean, there there is some of that happening where, at least on those days where we have this mixed approach for the fifth fifth through twelfth graders, they're in person a couple of days a week, and then three days a week they're at home. They're supposed to be at home online learning. And then I know that there are parents who have you know, organized very small, like two, you know, two, two, three, four kids getting together 
so that they're all under the same roof, but still also doing the online learning. We provide a definition of what a pod is, but it still could be interpreted in different ways. And this is one of those, you know, it's like that researcher's playbook or whatever. But I think there's just a lot more to be explored uh, around pods, particularly around parent opinions and experiences. And and I'm hopeful. I mean, there are some other really good uh, surveys that are going outside of what we do at EdChoice with Morning Consult, but others are also doing surveys around schooling and around COVID. And I hope that they start, they also ask uh, maybe in different ways about pods as well. Yeah, and I think an interesting sort of bit of evidence to back up that hypothesis, we also asked some open-ended questions about podding and opinions on that. And for those parents who identified that they were interested in forming a pod, that sort of top themes of that were that number one, they thought that it was safer than attending schools in person. Number two was having more socialization for children. Number three, networking for parents. But number four is a good supplement to e-learning. And we actually pulled out a particular quote that a parent said, for online learning to work, social interaction of some type must take place. Pods are one of the several ways to do this with kids. So pods could be this location where kids are doing e-learning together or are you know, that's when they're on their home days versus their versus their days in school. Now, interestingly, those who are not interested in forming a pod, their top themes were that they think that it's unsafe or could be potential exposure to COVID-19, um, that it's unnecessary for older children. They were unable to find others to participate in a pod with, or they had never heard of it. But this leads us to this other question. Well, I mean, part of it is definitional, but part of it is just a sort of behavior of parents. We did ask some questions about school switching. And Morning Consult put together a really cool figure for us that I would direct everyone to to see where we were able to kind of look at these flows where we start on the left-hand side, um, where it says the types of schools that people attended, and then what school they attended in the future. And you can see how many people went from where to where. So it seems that for all of school parents, just under a quarter switched schools this year. So about 22% switched. And this is relatively consistent. It was K-4 parents, it was 23%. 5-8, it was 24%. 9-12 parents, it was 18%. We're seeing up to a quarter of parents moving their children in school this year. And those movements were not just within one sector, but were actually between sectors as well. So I'd be interested to get your responses to this switching that's taking place and how it's taking place. Yeah, I think it's interesting that the way that the grades were switched out, because I wonder how many of those were structural changes, like going from elementary school to middle school, going from junior high to high school, or even like an intermediate school to a junior high. Um, but having said that, like the thing that sticks out to me is the bump in homeschooling. And that's parents from every other sector going into homeschooling to increase the bump. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that, Paul? Yeah. So I have a lot of disjointed thoughts about, I mean, I, it, so it's fascinating to me that basically if you just looked at the numbers from where kids were in February and where parents are saying their kids are going right now, I mean, the numbers are pretty stable, but there is, I mean, that's one nice thing that Morning Consult was able to do for us is to show like the, the the flows in between, and you still see even under that you know what looks like stability at two different points in time, there is actually a lot of movement uh, between those two, and especially across sectors. And so our largest proportion of students are from public district schools, 
and we see that you know a decent proportion are moving from public district schools to homeschooling some to charter schools some to private schools but but more there's a higher larger proportion going from district to homeschool than to those other types the school year and so i think you know we're kind of, i feel like we're kind of scratching the surface here and this is another one where i just would love to you know see us if we can you know go a little bit deeper in the coming months to see to have a better understanding of this shift but also to hopefully others will be able to you know, maybe this will give some ideas in terms of you know looking at this school uh, school sector switching from pre-pandemic to like while we're in the throes of the pandemic and then eventually hope you know hopefully at some time at some point next year where we can start staying post-pandemic or at least post-covid disruption and so yeah going back to the, the you know the numbers that mike had pointed out about the roughly you know the quarter of those who said they were switching and it's not just switching schools, but it's switching the type of school. So they may be going from like elementary to middle or middle to high school, but we're capturing like who would be actually switching into you know, what sectors, the sector switchers, which brings a bell, Mike. I think you had a report called sector switchers a while ago, which was an Low awesome. those many years ago. Well, I know it seems, yeah, these days it seems, yeah, like eons ago. But yeah, it was a great report though that you and Andrew Kelly did uh, looking at, yeah, just, you know, and I mean, it's a different, a little bit a different premise than what we're talking about here. But that's what we were really trying to get at was looking at the sector switchers and to see that it's about a quarter, at least in our sample. And I think is interesting. It's higher than I would have expected. Uh, even with the disruptions, it's still a little bit higher than I would have expected. But I'm yeah, interested in what you guys think. I'm interested say- actually in the private school number here because given when we ask these questions and looking retrospectively, seeing that people most likely leaving private, we saw the decrease in private school enrollment, people going to other places. Part of me thinks that that's a reflection of what went on in the spring, which was that public schools and private schools basically offered the same thing, which was online learning, right? Now, some did better than others, um, and some there was variation in there. But I think lots and lots of families, when we also saw the, you know, the economy collapsing and everything, were saying, we got to get out of private school, if it's going to be online, we'll just go to public school and that's fine. This fall, I think one of the things that we're seeing, at least anecdotally, I don't know if there's been any systematic look at this, but that more private schools seem to be opening for in-person instruction while more private schools are remaining uh, remote or doing some sort of hybrid plan. So this fall, we're actually seeing differentiation between those two sectors. So I'll be really interested to see as we look at this moving forward, how that changed. Because, I mean, it seems to me that there's a pretty clear explanation for what happened in the spring, and it'll be interesting if that holds up in in the fall. Yeah, and I would say the thing that stuck out to me, uh, especially for, you know, those of you who are maybe listening to this while you're going for a jog or driving your car and don't necessarily have the beautiful flowchart in front of you. From February to the school type attending this new year, it seems that about a third of those who are reporting homeschool for the current year were previous homeschoolers. And then it gets really interesting because after that, it seems in pretty even split between former charter parents, former private school parents, and former district school parents in terms of like the flow into homeschool. So that's really interesting to me that it's not necessarily um, a bunch of the private school, former private school students that are being homeschooled or predominantly district school students or predominantly charter school students, but it seems like it's a fairly even mix of each from those who were not homeschooling in February. 
that stood out to me too, Drew. And I think that's that is really interesting just to see. For me, the top line or like the big kind of message to me was seemed like the homeschoolers in February, and this is before lockdowns and stuff. So these are the traditional homeschoolers, or, you know, or conventional homeschoolers. They appear to be most likely to switch from year to year. And maybe that's because of the pandemic and COVID and what's happening right now. But this is something that's like, it seems like suggested that the homeschoolers may be more prone to switching sectors than other types. Um, and, but I think that's much more of a longitudinal kind of question that would have to be like, you know, investigated after uh, we get past, you know, the brunt of the, of, of the pandemic. But yeah, that stood out to me too, as it's really interesting to just see where homeschoolers have gone from last year to this year. As we bring this in for a landing here, I do want to just ask a couple of the sort of general questions or, or, or bring up some of the general questions that we, we've been asking, we will continue to ask, that I think are, are interesting is sort of all of this stuff happens in the background. So a pretty standard survey question we've asked, I know in the Schooling in America survey for years, we see it across you know other surveys of things, but the classic question of the kind of right track, wrong track of American education. And so we asked this question, yeah, do you feel things in K-12 education are generally going in the right direction, or do you feel things have generally gotten off on the wrong track? So when we look at the percentage of people who say right track, before all of this happened, right, back in January, about 35% of people said that their local school district was in the right direction, 31% said their state, and 22% said the nation. Now, interestingly, throughout February, March, and peaking in April, we saw almost half, 46% of people said their local school district was on the right track, 44% said their state was, and up to 36% said that the nation was. And then we saw a decline back to roughly where we started. Maybe the, the nation's a little bit higher than where it was at 29% in August compared to 22% in January. The state is you know, a couple points higher, 35% as opposed to 31%, and the local school district is at 38% instead of uh, 35%. But I'm sort of interested in your reactions to that wave that we saw. So steadily building up, peaking in April, then coming down May, June, July, and August. Do we think it's, have we regressed to the mean? Are we going somewhere different? Are we going to see a, an increase again? What, what do we think is driving that? That's a really good question. I mean, it's it seems like we're we we are right now, at least as of August, where we typically see these numbers uh, based on other polling that we've done. So these numbers look a lot more um, familiar. I'd be interested in Drew. I mean, we've worked together on the Schooling in America poll for some time now, but it looks like we're about where we have been in previous years. And I can't off the top of my head remember what we just reported for the wave one of Schooling in America, but I think it was right around here. Uh, in this, you know, this ballpark of roughly like three out of ten to a third believing that you know, K-12 education is going in the right, right direction. But as far as the trend on this, this survey that we do with Morning Consult, it does seem like there was a rally around the school. I mean, this is my interpretation. Uh, I'd love to hear what you, what you guys think and, and others too. There was like a rally around the school effect in April where, you know, that was right when you know, the lockdowns were occurring and there was a big shift and transition from in-person schooling to remote and, and online learning. And so the differences between district, state, and national have been pretty consistent over time. And they each got that bump too, significant bump, uh, especially compared to the, the beginning of the year uh, in April. But then, like you said, Mike, it's gone you know back down 
to to where we are today in around 30 to 38 percent uh, at the district level in terms of you know, positive sentiment. And then we'll just see over the course of the school year. And since there is so much variation now for what schools are doing, we can even you know dig into the demographics some more. And just along those lines, parents do tend to be more optimistic and positive than the the general population, which we generally report and which we tend to report. Parents tend to be more positive, and it will be interesting to see if they look differently, especially kind of in the rate of change over time compared to the national sample. And so talking about those uh, schooling in America numbers, which, you know, if you're interested in seeing what they look like longitudinally, uh, that report just came out on our website yesterday. So feel free to go check it out. Um, but overall, and schooling in America, we only ask about the United States, so we don't dive into uh, your specific state or district. But yeah, so for the for the 2020 schooling in America survey, it was 40 percent of the general population that said right direction, and slightly higher, about 47 percent of parents. And then when you're looking in, like over time, this is actually the highest percentage for school. You know, looking at schooling in America of parents that actually said right direction. We've been more consistent over a uh, wrong track, but there, you know, over time, there's actually been a decrease of those who are uh, saying that they don't know or they refuse or for the online instrument, they skip it. And it is kind of fascinating. Um, so compared to the last two years for School in America, 2018 was 35 percent, 2019 was 37%. So a lot of it could also be um, you know, slightly different sampling procedures, slightly different populations. But yeah, so all that to say that that some of these nationwide percentages may actually be lower than what I was anticipating, you know, compared to our uh, annual survey. And just real quick for kind of specific points of reference for folks, what we just released for our annual Schooling in America poll, that field work actually happened in May, like late May to very early June. And so for anyone who really wants to get into the wonky details or to compare the two different polling projects that we do at EdChoice, uh, so looking at the trend, you'd want to compare that to what we picked up around May and June here on the Morning Consult monthly tracker. But I think that's right. I mean, I think that what we found in Schooling America was a little bit, you know, a little bit higher than what we found here. And so, but the trends are interesting and they're pretty consistent with what we see across the two projects. Yeah, and one last trend to talk about uh, is about school spending. You know, there's been this huge conversation as schools get started again, the types of money that might need to be spent to, to bring them up into compliance with social distancing and PPE or any sort of other technology that needs to be used in others. So we've been asking this question about school spending. So we ask the question, asking people about their own state, whether they think that the amount of money that's spent on schools is too high or too low. And interesting, we sort of split the sample where we ask some people just that question generally, is the spending too high or too low? And then for another group of people, we actually tell them how much their state spends. And one of the things that we found and everybody has found over the years is that when you give people the actual information of how much is spent on schools, the number of people saying that they spend, uh, that spending is too low drops. But one of the things that I find in looking at the trend just within our own sampling, right? So starting in January, 64% of people without information said that spending is too low. And in every iteration of this survey since then, it has ticked downward. Uh, by now, it's actually down to just 49%, just 49% of people down from 64 again, unprompted, say that um, that spending is too low. 
And when we actually give the information, interestingly, that trend line looks much like what we were just talking about with the overall sort of right track, wrong track, where it starts again at a lower base of about 40%. And it was trending slightly downward, but then peaked in April again, only to track back down even lower than it was before. So in January, about 40% of people thought it was too low. This uh, in March, it was only 36, only to jump up to 47% in April, but back down to 31% in May. And now it's down to just 28%. So when given information, just 28% of respondents think that that spending level is too low. So how do we make sense of all of it? It's like, how do we make sense of the general decline, just even of the sort of naive way of looking at it without any information? And then how do we look that given that information now, we've seen such a decline? I think, at least for me, I uh, think I'm going to call it the uh, the shuttered bounce, if you will. So in April, pretty much every school in America was closed, more or less. Not in every single state, but I would say the sheer majority of schools were uh, not open for daily in-person instruction. So I wonder how much of a shift that had uh, in parents realizing how valuable their child going to a physical school actually is, having to uh, kind of do it all themselves at home, even if there is the the online learning. And, and for a lot of parents who haven't been in a classroom themselves in a long time, realizing how much actually goes into this, and then thinking from there, you know, salaries and how much everything costs. Um, I don't know. What do you think, Paul? Yeah, this is, it is interesting. So this is consistent with what we have picked up in schooling in America for the last eight years. And also this, all the state level polling that we've been doing for, you know, a long time. And Drew, you've, you've been at the forefront of that for, for some time now too. Where this is a consistent finding where it's in that kind of like 15 to 20 point difference between having information and not having information and the effect that it can have, the reduction that will occur if you give somebody a, just a statistic about per student spending in their state. If you look at the May numbers, May, June numbers here with our morning consult monthly tracking poll and compare that to what we just released in Schooling in America, which also was fielded in that mid, you know, mid-May to early June, I mean, those are very consistent. So in, in the first wave of schooling in America, we saw the difference was about 14-point gap or 14-point reduction when giving respondents that specific information about per-student spending. And here, you know, we see that that's roughly been the case. And in some way, there was a bigger gap, even about 20 points, 15 to 20 points over time. And most recently, you know, that's that about 21 points where 49% would say too low without information and 28% would say that spending's uh, too low with information. So this is definitely a consistent finding. I think in that trend downward, it does, in terms of implications that, uh, yeah, Mike, and I think that was the thrust of your question was just like, what does this, what could this imply moving forward? I mean, I think it has huge implications. You know, we start starting to see the drumbeat of a lot of kind of the, the usual school funding arguments and assertions and claims that are being made that have been made for for a very long time uh, and that's and that has taken shape it seems appears in the last couple of months but as we head into a you know the election and then post-election with uh, next year being a budget session for many state legislatures there's going to be a lot of talk about school funding what's adequate what's enough in the current environment and looking forward and also, I think parents, the more that they do 
help or at least facilitate the learning for their kids at home, uh, whether it's on their own with pods with other parents or if it's, you know, at least assisting the schools with facilitating remote learning, which a lot of, you know, K-4, K-5 parents are probably doing. I mean, at least speaking (laughs) from personal experience, I mean, that's definitely something that we're involved with. So I think that that could shape how people view spending even more. And so so that'll be interesting to see how these trend lines will they continue to both go down and then will the, or and will the gap get even bigger or will it shrink and will they kind of converge a little bit where it doesn't really matter you know as much on what that actual spending is and it's just the overall like kind of feeling that people have about funding in general or spending in general so it does make me kind of curious as to how many folks out there think that it should be the school providing the computer to the child which you know I'm all for up to a certain income level, most definitely. But yeah, I wonder how much that, like technology in general, like kind of as was mentioned, kind of really comes into play. Yeah, because at-home learning without computer access is pretty much impossible. And although a lot of districts do have, you know, one-to-one device plans and policies, a lot is, a lot of districts still don't. Well, friends... It was great chatting with you on this one. And so, folks, as as these things are percolating in your minds as well, and we think about how these trends might or might not continue into the future, fear not, we shall be here with you every step of the way, continuing to survey people, continuing to share and chat about the results. And we'll see. We'll see how, as the as folks go back to school, how some of these opinions may change or may stay the same. We'll look at how some of these folks have reacted and we'll be able to see whether their actions match their opinions. And um, I think generate a lot of really interesting information as we go forward. So Paul, Drew, it's been a great pleasure chatting with you. And for everyone listening at home, look forward to chatting with all of you again on another edition of EdChoice Chats. 